Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in the motorcycle industry right to you. I'm Dave Sulecki. I'm Dale Spangler. And this week, our guest is Steve Johnson, a past pro motocross racer who spent nearly 30 years working in the power sports industry. This episode of Pit Pass Moto is brought to you by Moto America. Moto America is the home of AMA Superbike Racing and is North America's premier motorcycle road racing series. Rewatch every round of the 2022 series and revisit all the action with the Moto America Live Plus video on demand streaming service. Or visit the Moto America YouTube channel for race highlights and original video content. To view the complete 2023 Moto America race schedule, head over to MotoAmerica.com and be sure to follow Moto America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for real-time series updates. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 149, our penultimate show of 2022. Thought I'd do a little housekeeping before we get started. Our next episode, episode 150, will be our last of 2022, and it's uh, scheduled to air on December 22nd. Then Dave and I will go on break through the holidays, and we'll be back with our first episode of 2023 on January 12th. Super excited about 2023 and uh, looking forward to another fun year with you guys where we continue to bring you timely news and interviews with racers, riders, and industry regulars. Speaking of 2023, Dave, the final piece that everybody's been waiting for fell into place. Ken Roxon signs with Hep Suzuki. Can you believe it, or did you think that's what was going to happen? I love it. They're calling him Kickstart Kenny <laughs> is his nickname. So uh, That's awesome. And he goes into the season. I got I to gotta believe. I think it's great news. He finally settled. I don't think anybody should be totally surprised where he ended up, but... Um, Kind of coming in as the underdog now. And I think this uh, particular team and bike, everybody kind of underestimates maybe in their minds. So it's going to be interesting uh, when the gates drop on January 7th. Yeah, there was a really great interview that Vital MX put up with Kyle Chisholm, who we just learned is also going to be Ken Roxon's teammate over at Hep Suzuki alongside, uh, I think there's going to be one other signing, isn't there, Dave? Did you, did you, uh, hear anything about that i did yeah yeah who is who's it going to be well at the pri show the rumor was uh i'd say beyond strong and confirmed by a couple of industry insiders that uh, the other teammate is going to be shane McElrath. wow who just recently won the uh world supercross championship in the um sx1 class i think it was the 250 cc class sx2 yeah and i think he's a replacement rider for an injured rider so uh there's a pretty stout team i mean you really got to hand it to the HEP team. I mean, they've they've really come out of come out swinging for 2023. Yeah, they seem like they have it together. I heard they're rebuilding their facilities. They've got like a dyno on order and a suspension dyno or something like that. So they're really spending money. You know, Suzuki's on board. It looks to me like Roxon is able to. He kept a couple of his personal sponsors, Red Bull and Fox. There was some rumors that he was going to change to uh, Fly Racing, which is the new gear for the HEP 450 team. So that might have had some of the, you know, something to do with his decision. He's able to keep those two sponsors. I figure between the two of those, he's probably making a couple million. So not a bad place to start. Uh, but it seems like the bike's good. You know, from what I, the interview I watched with Kyle Chisholm, he helped set the bike up for Ken Roxon initially. And he seems to love the bike, you know, minus the Kickstarter, you know, Kickstarter debate, which I think is kind of silly. You know, like some people were making some great points. Like if you look back not that long ago, there were bikes winning championships with Kickstarters on them. No problem against bikes with electric start. So I don't think it's a big deal. They'll probably end up putting something on the bike anyways as kind of a backup. So I don't think it's a big deal at all. I think it's going to be amazing. The story is going to be so good. 
looking forward to it. Yeah, and how much in the end of the, at the end of the day does the Kickstarter even matter? I mean, it, only in certain situations on the track, if something were to happen, stalls the bike, goes off the track, stalls the bike, whatever. That's the only time that really is a, a factor in the outcome of the race. If the rest of the bike is working and it's making Kenny happy, he's comfortable on it. That's half the battle. I mean, yeah. this this sport is highly mental. Yep. You know, if he's content and happy and comfortable, that's as he's proven in that World Supercross series when he was super comfortable on that Honda. You know, he was unstoppable. So it's all a mindset, and I think it uh, definitely is uh, working in his favor. I mean, uh, it's good to know. And it was it's funny because it was exactly thirty days before the the gate drop that he made his uh, announcement of the signing. I thought that was kind of interesting timing. Oh, I didn't even put that together. Yeah, it was interesting timing, but you know, we're looking forward to it, man. It's uh, it's definitely added some drama and some uh, good talking points uh, as they kick off the season. Yeah, I kind of think the uh, Kickstarter versus push button starter. It's almost like it's made the racers a little bit complacent. It's almost like they've lost their sense of urgency when they crash. How many times have we seen recently where you just see a rider sitting on the bike, pushing the button, waiting for it to start? It's almost like, you know, they're, they kind of lose a little bit of that sense of urgency. So I don't know. I don't think it's a big deal. He seems to really like the bike. With this HEP opportunity also, if he wants to go World Supercross, he can. He has that opportunity since they're in both series now. I have a feeling he's probably going to stick to U.S. Supercross and you know, Super Motocross. I don't know. It's hard to say. Like We'll, we'll find out, but... um He's the new alpha on the team, which I think is something he was probably looking for too. He's going to be the focus. And so uh, going to be a great program going forward. Awesome to see Suzuki back. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you mentioned World Supercross, which direction he's going to lean because, as I understand, this is a one-year deal for Kenny. Yep. I don't know if there's an option for next year, but it sounds like it's a one-year deal. So is he going to start out Supercross, start out outdoors, and then maybe kind of see how things are going. And because I know there are scheduling conflicts, and I know you wanted to talk about that with World Supercross and the outdoor motocross and the super motocross finals that are supposed to happen late in the year. Yeah. So on that note, last week, the World Supercross announced their provisional calendar, and it's comprised of six rounds in six countries across four continents. And uh, according, according to their statement, they said they're just getting started. So Six rounds in 2023, who knows? Maybe they'll go to 10 or something like that in 2024. But uh, the six rounds will be visiting the United Kingdom, France, Southeast Asia, which is to be announced. I have a feeling it'll probably be someplace like Indonesia, uh, Germany, Australia, and then the series makes one stop in North America, not the United States, but in Vancouver, Canada. So pretty good series. But as you mentioned, Dave, yeah, three of these dates conflict with either U.S., motocross, or MXGP. So I feel like that's going to limit some of the World Supercross riders making that decision. The opening round on July 1st conflicts with Redbud and the Lombok MXGP. So I don't know if there's any GP riders that wanted to race World Supercross too, but that's going to certainly put a dampener on that. And then round two on July 22nd conflicts with Washougal and the MXGP of Flanders. And so, yeah, and then the third one is the German GP in October, and that conflicts with the SMX World Championship final. So it seems kind of funny that that ended up landing on the exact same date as the SMX World Championship final. I don't think that's a coincidence, but maybe it is. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. And (laughs) and kind of the other thing that falls into this, and we talked about this on uh, previous episodes, and that's the Motocross of Nations is October 22nd. So it falls exactly right between the German Grand Prix slash the LA final for Super Motocross and that Canadian Grand Prix in Vancouver. So how many riders decide, oh, I don't want to get hurt, so I'm not going to go to the Motocross of Nations because I'm in it for the World Supercross title or I'm in it for the Super Motocross title. 
my prediction is this World Supercross is going to draw the guys that aren't having a good season, sign up with a team and can get in. It gives them some life going into, you know, late in the year. Are they going to get the premier riders? Are they going to get the top riders? I don't know. It doesn't look good to me just from my perspective, but mine's just one opinion on the subject. Yeah, I feel like on the SX1, it's probably going to be more senior riders. I'm going to use that term, air quote, senior. But no, it seems like a guy like Kyle Chisholm, perfect example. He's a little later in his career. He might not necessarily want to race as much as he as he did, but you know he's going to race smarter, not harder. And so I think for a guy like him, it's you know it's a no brainer. But for Ken Roxton, you know you just don't. I mean, which way is he going to go? You know I think he could probably make a lot of money off this World Supercross. But then if you start with the Supercross series and then to be a part of the uh, Super Motocross finale, you have to race some outdoors. So it, it's uh, it's kind of like they're throwing down the gauntlet. World Supercross is right now, and these riders are gonna, you know, find out where the chips will fall next year and where these where these riders end up. So, as always, we'll we'll keep an eye on this subject. But more than anything, it looks like this series is really trying to become a true world uh, championship and be on pretty much every continent, like Formula One. And so, uh, yeah, good for the sport. Good to see what's what's gonna develop from this. Definitely got to keep our eyes on it because uh, don't know which way it's going to go. And and we've got a similar happening in the U.S. with the American Flat Track Series for 2023. Kind of want to know where it's going to go. They've announced a provisional schedule. It uh, runs from March 9th through September 3rd, and it's a pretty packed schedule because they've got uh, five mile events, five half mile events, four short track events, and three TT events packed in there. And they're all kind of keyed off of other motorcycle events. A lot of them are related to things like Sturgis, for example, and Daytona Bike Week. So they've kind of synced those up with major events to try to draw people in. But they've got such a big change in the Twins class, the Premier class, that it's affecting what's going to roll out for next year. So 2022 was an experimental season for Flat Track where they were trying to merge the Super Twins class, which was the kind of unlimited type uh, Twins racing. They tried to merge that somewhat with the production twins class, which was a production-based class where it was production-based motorcycle and engine. They had a series, what was called the production twins challenge, where they took four uh, riders from the production class and ran them in the super twins just to kind of get the two classes closer together, get the right riders and teams comfortable and, and adjusting because for 2023, they are basically dropping the super twins class and just will have production twins going into the new year. So that's put some challenges on the race teams, I think, going into uh, this 2023 season. Yeah, from my understanding of it, you know, pretty high level. I I haven't really dug that deeply into it, and you're definitely more technically savvy than I am. But it, it seems like what they're trying to do is just be able to, in some ways, reduce costs. You know, like have one class, create more interest, but then you've got this sort of dichotomy of, you know, a production bike that where they can build, use a production-based engine up to 890cc, whereas the super twin bikes that are built, you know, specifically for, for racing can only go to 750cc's. Is that the case? Is that my understanding of that correct? Yeah, that is some of it. The basically, flat track has just imposed more and more rolls on that super twins class to bring them down in speed so that the production twins can catch up and they've given them more leeway in tuning. So I'll give you some examples. Like you said, the 890cc limit for a production base, but they also allowed, allowed to run uh, bigger throttle bodies. They can have ride-by-wire uh, electronics. Those things can combine to more horsepower, where on the the high zoot uh, FTR 750 engine, for example, they limit the RPM to 11.5. They put a restrictor plate in the engine. They can only have certain size throttle bodies. So it's all in an effort to try to, like you said, maybe bring the cost down, bring the two together. But 
what's happening is going through all of this, Harley is actually backing out and pulling away from the sport and they may or may not back a team for the new season. So therefore their main development partner, who's Vance and Hines, is also pulling back from the series. So that's going to leave it up to some other teams, the Etchison team, for example, the Yamaha team. They're still going to go racing. They've got some premier riders, but what's going to happen with Indian? Are they going to go racing? We don't know. Are there going to be any Harleys on the track? We still don't know. I do know there was a certain class champion from the Super Twins class last year walking around the PRI show uh, this last weekend, <laughs> and he was claimed to say that uh, he may not be going racing this next year. So oh, wow. all of this has really impacted the series, and I don't know which way it's going to go. I know some teams will go racing, but it almost seems like it's going to be on a much smaller scale for 2023. We really don't know. Yeah, it's like the series is a little bit in flux. You know, from what I read, they were they were kind of like... I don't know. The, the series seemed like it was going a little bit down. Interest in the series, you know, was going down a little bit. And so I think this is a way for them to try and reinvigorate the series, bring some more interest, bring the OEMs back to the table, like you're saying, because it was kind of the Indian show for the most part, because right. they just dominated so much. And uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of a little bit of a Moto America thing, though, getting in there, trying to level the playing field, because it's, you know, we've learned that a little bit through the, how Moto America does that in some of their classes as well. Yeah, so maybe this is this 2023 season's a reset for AFT. We're going to see. It would be kind of sad if we don't see a Jared Mees out there because he was such a talent. And I wouldn't blame him if they didn't go racing. Maybe if Indian just kind of took their ball and went home just because of the rule changes just did not work in their favor. Uh, but you can go racing. You can go to uh, Vance and Hines and you can buy yourself an XG750R for $39,000 and you're spooled up and ready to go. So uh, <laughs> it's still a possibility. You can also go the private route and build yourself a Yamaha MT-07 and go racing, but I'm sure the cost it probably isn't much different than that. So there are some contingencies. I know that Vance and Hines had offered contingencies for 2022 and they were paired with Harley-Davidson on that. But uh they may or may not be doing it this next year. We're going to kind of wait and see. Uh, we love flat track. It's one of the most exciting forms of racing out there. And if you ever get a chance, check it out. But uh, this doesn't spell well for the series if it doesn't follow through with, you know, increased participation and, you know, more turnout for watching the events. I heard you mention earlier there the PRI show. And I've never been to that show. It looks like it's kind of back in our old stomping grounds in Indianapolis where the AIM Expo used to be held for a while. And so... Were there some pretty interesting stuff there? It looked like it was, you know, amazing show from what I saw. Yeah, definitely by a mile. A PRI show, it's every year, usually in early December. It was December uh, 8th through 10th uh, in Indianapolis. What's that stand for? Performance Racing Industry. Yeah, okay. So yeah. It, they are actually the partner. They are the same ownership as the SEMA show, which is held in Las Vegas. Oh, okay. But this is more the hardcore technical side of the business, which is the engine builders for just possibly every form of racing that goes on in the United States. And what I've noticed over the years, because this is one of my favorite shows, being kind of a gearhead myself, that they are starting to cross over into power sports. You're seeing it more and more and more as you walk the floor and see the vendors that are attending. We see a lot of the same vendors that attend motorcycle-related uh, trade shows, such as AIM. UTV primarily? More than two-wheel, though? No. Huh. Surprisingly, a lot of two wheel. In fact, we actually we actually had a Vance and Hines. We had uh, Jesse Janice's uh, production twins winning number one bike in our booth at the uh, Wastner booth at the show, and there were other Vance and Hines uh, race bikes. Uh, Angel Savo uh, Sampay's bike was uh, in one of the three D printing booths. 
So just a lot of motorcycle stuff as you walk to show and a lot of motorcycle vendors were there. So it's cool. If you're a, if you're a gearhead and you love technical things about uh, building engines and everything that goes with it, which is a big part of uh, the racing industry and in, in both automotive and and power sports. This is the show to go to and learn about new products and technologies that are available to squeeze the most out of uh, any possible engine you're trying to build. Anything that stood out that really was just like, wow, that's the coolest thing I've seen, you know, in a while. Oh, every time I go, it's like that. I just see, <laughs> to me, the technology that has become available to the average, uh, let's say, business or shop that wants to get into the business, the machining side has become nearly turnkey, where it used to be kind of a big barrier to get into because you had to have a lot of know-how and how to piece the things together. A lot of these machining manufacturers are now offering programs where they will analyze your product line and come up with business solutions and provide all of the information to get set up and running to the point where it's almost hands-off. So to me, that's that's what's evolved in this industry is just the technology on the machining side has is, is grown in the last 10 years just tremendously. So I, I enjoy seeing that stuff because that's the kind of thing I do. And there's just loads of it there. And it just impresses me every year. Well, I think our, our guest that we have coming on here, Steve Johnson, he's, he's one of those guys that I think he's very similar minded as you and, you know, very technical. And so that sounds like a place that he would have loved to have gone to during his period at, at Weisco. You guys work together. So looking forward to uh, catching up with our friend Steve here shortly. like to welcome to Pit Pass Moto today, Steve Johnson. He is a longtime power sports industry guy who is now selling uh, buses for uh, for Daimler. So, uh, Steve, we want to thank you for coming on the show today and telling some stories with us, man. How are you? I'm doing great, Dave. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be back. It's been a while, so I miss you guys and really excited to be here. Uh, I mentioned that you're selling buses. I mean, what are you up to these days? I understand you're selling municipal buses for, you know, school systems and such. It's Thomas built buses, I understand, which is part of Daimler. How's that going for you? It's really, really great. I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's the polar opposite of racing. It's the safest and most regulated vehicle on the road. <laughs> like I said, it's the polar opposite of racing. We try to build the safest, you know, most mundane vehicle we can because, you know, we're hauling the most precious cargo in the world, our kids. And uh, with my role, at it, uh, which is it's Daimler Trucks North America, which is a group we're in, which is part of Daimler Worldwide. And that includes Mercedes, Mercedes Truck, Freightliner, Western Star, and, and of course, the Thomas Built Bus brand and Sprinter is part of that group. Now we've got electric buses and, you know, it's just the, the age of electrification is coming fast. And there's, you know, $5 billion from the government out there that we're trying to get our lion's share of that and getting our bus out there and rock and roll. We got over 250 on the road already. That's 250 of the EV, because that was actually one of my questions for you was, uh, is the EV movement kind of hitting you guys? Sounds like it is. It is full throttle. I, I spend every day talking about it. I've created an EV experience at our company so that when we bring in factory tours, we have a, uh, an electric vehicle chassis there. And typically, it's all customer buses that we're using these demonstrations for. So as we're building them, so we have an electric vehicle chassis so they can see what the battery packs and the drivetrain look like without the body sitting on it. And then we build the body and, and you know install that on the bus that day. It's it's really, really fun. You know, again, we've got 200 plus out on the road running every day all over the country. Even as far as Toke, Alaska, we've got one up there, 45 below zero. It's the warmest bus they have. So they just love it. That's cool. Sounds like your company is at the forefront. We talk about it a lot on Power Sports and where it's headed, but uh, that's interesting to hear. 
So I wanted to go back in time a little bit and talk about, uh, you know, you grew up around racing. I know your dad was a snowmobile racer, he raced Rups, I think. How did that lead to you getting started riding uh, motorcycles or anything in general? How did that begin and what was your first bike? Yeah, so my dad had a, had a need for speed, you know, so he was a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. He was in the Air Force. He was an MP. I still have trophies of his from him racing Jeeps in the Air Force. So they had actually had, you know, organized Jeep races for the troops. So <laughs> he, he was racing at an early age in his early 20s. And then uh, once he got married and had kids, uh, he started racing snowmobiles in about 1969. He became a Rupp dealer in that same era. So he was a factory racer for Rupp because he immediately had a need for speed. And, you know, if he wasn't up front, he wasn't happy. So he was doing everything he could to build the fastest and best handling machines. And so racing was in the family right from the get-go. And when I was four, my dad got me a little Rupp scrambler, a little, you know, four-horse Tecumseh belt-driven. The thing would do like 50. It was just crazy fast once it'd shift through the, the belt drive. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And then started racing when I was 10. He got me, I, I got hooked by my uncle race motocross. Uh, raced Huskies for the most part, my mom's brother, and you know, in the early late '60s, early '70s, and then uh, our neighbor raced as well. So we would see them, the Spear family, and everybody knows Ron Spear. So Ron's dad raced. So I would see the Spear family at the same races as my uncles. So it goes all the way back back to them. A funny part about you, Steve, is that when I first started racing, the very first place I rode my 1981 YZ80 was at your house. I don't know if you remember that. I remember you guys coming over. Yeah. So I came over there, didn't have a clue what I was doing, crashed my brains out, got my first scar from, from a dirt bike crash <laughs> on my knee. I don't even think I had <laughs> knee pads on. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm, I remember you coming over to the house and, you know, your dad Spanky was just awesome. If you, you loved him the minute you met the guy. And, uh, you know, we just had a, had a lot of fun all those years watching you grow up and, and, you know, move your way through the pro ranks and had a good career. Yeah. And then I think it was after that, I think it was your dad that was like, hey, you should go racing at Erie PA. You know, that was that little like night track out there. Yep. Wattsburg. Yeah. Wattsburg. So and what happens? I crashed my brains out again. And it was on that jump that they had. I think it was tequila dive. I think they called it. It was right in the middle. Yeah. So crashed my brains out on that. So those are my first two riding and racing experiences. And uh I don't know, Steve, like it seems like, I mean, you were there from the start, but um, let's let's go on to your career though, because I feel like, man, there's so much that you've done in your racing career. We haven't even gotten to like your industry career. How far did you make it in pro motocross? Because if I'm not mistaken, I think you and Kenny Keelan were Yamaha teammates. I don't know if you were fully factory, but you had Yamaha support, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, correct. Uh, in 83, um, I got some help from a local guy down there. It's actually uh, Kenny Keelan's in-laws now. Um, oh. I was living with, with Kenny's wife's family. Um, Renee's dad, which is Kenny's wife, uh, Renee's dad started helping me with a, a couple of 1984 YZ250s and uh, gave me some support. And I went to my first national at uh, Six Flags over Georgia when they had the national there. And my first pro moto, I got ninth place. Ricky Johnson was a huge contributor to that to that position for that race. He, he and I got like 39 and 40th on the gate pick. I'll never forget that. He's like, dude, just just come all the way to the outside with me and follow me. He says, when we, when we hit that jump after the first turn, he goes, do not let off. And we will go, we, regardless of where, we, where we're going to land, we'll be up front because we'll jump over top of everybody. He goes, I've already done it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, so we did. So uh, and then the Sakamoto had, you know, running up front again and uh, took a header. I might even have tangled with Bowen at one point uh, as he was coming around to lap me, but still in the top 10 and uh, broke my clutch lever off and all that. So I don't know where I ended up for the day, but uh, my first moto was ninth. And I remember Larry Griffiths, who was running Team Yamaha at the time, he comes walking up. He's like, who the hell are you? 
I called nobody. Just, uh, had a good moto, but it was fun. Yeah, I think I, I tried to look you up in the uh, the Racer X vault, and what I saw, like, I don't know if this is the correct information, but I saw where you finished 11th at the 1984 High Point National. Was that your best overall outdoor finish? Best overall for sure. And I think I might have got 12th at, at Red Bud and was running 7th at Millville and actually passed out in the second moto. Oh. I mean, I just overtrained. They said you were dehydrated, exhausted, all that. I woke up in the back of Fred Andrews' pickup truck on the way home. After you finished racing pro motocross, though, did you go onto the ATV side? I didn't even remember that, that you were a factory Yamaha ATV guy. Yeah, and, and just to touch on the Yamaha stuff a little bit, they gave me some bikes and parts after that first round at uh, Six Flags over Georgia. Larry was just great, and, you know, High Point was definitely a, a good good career race for me. And, you know, just being new to that whole thing, I, I definitely would have, you know, in today's world where you've got a trainer and somebody to help you with your nutrition and all that stuff, that you know, could have been a a much different world. But, you know, Jeff Bell, my best friend and, and travel mechanic, you know, he and I uh, were just winging it and <laughs> figuring out as we went, but it was fun. So after, you know, racing uh, pro motocross as long as I could, well, Kenny Keelan and I were racing the winter series after the, the 84 season. And um, Yamaha said, hey, we'd like to send you guys to Brazil and race for factory Yamaha there, you know, full factory ride, box van, mechanics, house, the whole nine yards. And we're like, oh, hell yeah, we're in. So they were going to send Kenny and I because we already traveled together and rode and trained together every day. And uh, he really helped push me, you know, to get me into the pro level ranks for sure. Without without Kenny, you know, mentoring me that whole time, I would have taken much, much longer, you know, probably another year or two to even get in the, the top 20, let alone the top 10. You know, because Kenny was a top 10 guy every weekend. So racing with somebody that's that even an outdoor national winner. So racing with somebody with that caliber of speed, you know, it's just going to rub off and you know learn things. And I think from racing, maybe even before those Yamaha years, you were always closely connected and associated to the Weisco brand. I always remember your Suzuki's were painted red and black and white, and they had Weisco in the tank. That was maybe back in 81. I'm going back probably a few years before the Yamaha deal. But uh, how did that lead to you kind of segueing into the industry? Because you were racing and you knew the company well. Is that how the connection kind of came about? Yeah. And my dad raced for Wiseco. He raced against, you know, the Andersons and Kipps, you know, ice ovals. So they all knew each other. They sponsored my dad racing. So when I got on a bike, they said, well, all right, well, we're just going to put Wiseco stickers on your bike and you'll be a, a test dummy for us in the dirt bike market, which I was. Um, you know, Tom Kipp was actually, Tom Kipp Sr. was actually hand grinding pistons for me to, you know, get shapes dialed in. And my dad was constantly taking the bikes apart and sending stuff back to those guys. And in the early days, I actually uh, acquired the nickname of Seasco. So, you know, we were either up front or seized it up one or the other. <laughs> so after after my pro career, like I said, we, we were getting ready to go to Brazil and I dislocated my shoulder at West Palm Beach for the second time. So I, I was on the injured list. So Rodney Smith went in my place and Rodney had a great career down there. And, you know, the rest is history for him. And at that point, I got back and got surgery and tried getting back on a dirt bike and it just hurt so bad. I, I just the, the damage it was done. I just could not ride at that level. And so Mr. Gorman, Bob Gorman, one of the owners of Comedic or the owner now was hounding me, man, come work for us. Go, you know, we'll do trackside support. You can come work technical sales. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to go fly airplanes and come to find out the money my dad and I kind of set aside for me to go to uh, aviation school to become a professional pilot. He used on his new boat after I got my contract with Yamaha. He figured I was going that way so he could use that money for something else. So I had to go get a real job. So I went and worked for Weiss Cohen for the next you know, 23 years. That was history. 
Yeah, in history it was. Some some great stories. We could have a whole show just talking about those years, you and I, I know, and Dale also. I mean, there was so much that went on. But t- kind of talk about those years at Wiseco. You held several roles in the company. I know you started out as sales and race support, but that matured over the years up until I think when you left, was it 2006 or seven, when you went to another opportunity. But uh, talk about some of those roles you had with the company. Yeah, so it started out with, uh, you know, in technical sales because I was a gearhead, rebuilt all my own stuff, snowmobiles, dirt bikes, jet skis. So in the early days of technical sales and then moved into uh, doing special products, uh, handling all the oddball custom business for Wiseco, you know, doing the big board kits, the the vintage snowmobile stuff or obsolete products, you know, for bikes or snowmobiles and just kept expanding that, you know, did a, the trackside support, you know, Loretta Lens. I don't, I don't think I missed a Loretta Lens for, or Daytona for at least 20 to 25 years straight. Either, either I was racing it or working it or both. That progressed into the, uh, the the power sports manager role, you know, overseeing the product line and and all the things that went with that, you know, new product development, working side by side with you, Dave, on the engineering side, working with Dale and the guys at Cometic and uh, that that crew to make sure we had gaskets tied into that and crankshafts and rods and whatever else we were trying to develop and you know putting all those kits together building the catalog and that was just uh, just a ton of fun yeah and the legacy is I mean over all those years you became the face of Wisco I still today I'll meet people in the industry and I'll always bring your name up and you've been you know gone from Wisco since then and you're still associated with the brand after all these years almost as much as the, I would say the family members were that's quite a legacy when you really think about it. I bleed red, black, and white. You know, for those of you that aren't familiar, those are the company colors. You know, everything I have in the house, I still have original business cards. I got pictures of me five years old with a Wiseco hat on, you know, fishing up in Canada or something with my dad because, you know, this is what we did. I'm still pretty close with the, the, the Kip family. Tommy, the grandson of the founder, Clyde Wiseman, you know, Tommy and I talk all the time. He's a pilot, so we go flying together and do some events. And he actually just moved back home. They're back in Ohio now. But yeah, just been with Wiseco forever. And for me, that's it's in my blood, it's in my DNA, and and you know I, I don't think all that'll ever change. I'm, I'm you know severely loyal to the brand and the family, and uh, just because we've got you know I grew up with it, so it, it's like, again it's part of my DNA. We'd like to take a break from the interview right now and pay some bills, and here's a word from our sponsor. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Eventually, that led to your next role that you took on. I know you took some schooling and uh, you had an opportunity to go south to uh, some better weather out of Ohio, and uh, that turned into a pretty good opportunity for you. It, it did, and, and really, it was more out of keeping my wife happy and staying married than than it was an opportunity. <laughs> She's like, uh, "I'm I am not spending another winter in Cleveland, Ohio, so I'm moving with you or without you. So find a job." I'm like, honey, you realize I have the best job in the world, right? I get I get paid to ride motorcycles all over the planet, and I've got friends, you know, for the last 30 years in this industry. And and she's like, I I can't do it. I just can't stay here. So Jim Zaretich, who was our president at Wiseco previously, and Jim had worked at Wiseco for 21 years, and you know worked his way up through manufacturing and and, uh, and with the Dover organization as well. And Jim was the president at CV Products, which was one of our automotive, primarily automotive distributors, really just north of Charlotte, North Carolina, just south of Greensboro, where we live. 
And, uh, you know, I said to Jim, I said, hey, you know, the wife wants to get out of Ohio. He goes, dude, I get it. We, we love it here. And I said, you know, have you got any openings that I might be able to fit into with your organization? And he says, yeah, man, that'd be great. Come on down. So we did. And Jim, you know, put me at the, the head of his power sports division. And we actually grew that, you know, the valve train and our online air filters and batteries. And it just kept expanding our own portfolio in addition to distributing other brands like braking and the CV4 hoses with our own brand with that. And and then, uh, then they actually had me start to do the automotive side of the business as well as the sales director for the company. So I oversaw power sports and automotive uh, up until the, the last days there, you know, once the company changed ownership in two, 2014, I think it was, that the new owner came in and he pretty much cleaned house from the, uh, the CFO on down. And, and CV Products does not exist anymore. So he wasn't quite as smart as he thought he was. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah, for sure. A lot of great people. Seems to happen a lot these days. That's just the way it is. But to back up a little bit, Steve, about to your Weisco days, and something I was thinking about the last the last couple of years, I've thought about this numerous times, but I don't know if you knew this, but to me, you were definitely, in a lot of ways, a mentor to me. My first job at Cometic Gasket, I was a naive, just a dirt bike racer, didn't really know what I was doing. They hired me to be a draftsman. I asked if I could do some marketing. And so they let me. And so what did I do? I went to the races and I did what Steve did. If Steve put up a tent and a table, that's what I did. And so I feel like I, I owe you a thanks for that. I, I want to say thanks because I probably wouldn't be in this industry without that. Whether it was Loretta Lynn's, High Point, Steel City, like with the Cometic Gasket, I was set up. And like I said, I just I did what Steve did. So just wanted to give you some accolades for that. Well, and, and, and I've seen you say that before, Dale. So thank you so much. And I, it always makes me smile. And, uh, and I think, you know, you'd said it a few years back. And I think I sent you a text or reached out to you through email and just said thanks for for the, uh, for the kudos there. And, you know, and I, I love you like family and I'm, I'm excited, you know, all the stuff you got going on and, you know, I've, I've watched your career with dirt buzz and your years at Western power sports and all that and comedic as well. And just doing all that stuff. I mean, you know, how much fun did we have going to the races? You and Dave and I too much, um, all the, all the, <laughs> and nearly all the races we hit and the insanity that went down that we can't talk about. Otherwise we'd be implicating ourselves in illegal activity. Definitely. <laughs> There's a couple that just came to mind to me. I'm, I'm going like, to hit the mute button. Yeah, on can't tell that story. Plausible <laughs> <laughs> deniability, Dave. I didn't hear a thing. What, what are you talking about? Exactly. Well, so on that, though, you were talking about, so you went to CV Products, as Dave mentioned, and then you made, like, this is what really kind of blew me away. You switched industries completely. And I guess now it makes more sense because CV went away. I was going to ask you, how did that come about? Like, you you now have two businesses that focus on the the aviation industry, you know, they're technical businesses, which kind of makes sense to me when I look at it, you know, with your background, it seems like it was a natural thing for you. Uh, one of them's everything aero, and then you have perfect aircraft. So, so what are these businesses and, you know, how did you decide to go in that direction? So perfect aircraft is and was a, a detailing company that my nephew started fresh out of college. So he was doing that in the summertime when he wasn't going to school. So he would, he came down here and finished a couple courses at, uh, at the local college and spent the summer with me and we were talking about it, and um, he went back up and graduated from Kent State University with a business degree, and and he's like, man, what do you think about starting an aviation detailing company in North Carolina? I go, dude, I know all the NASCAR teams. I know a lot of the pilots. I can get you I can get you started in there pretty quickly just because of all the guys that I've met through that industry that are dirt bikers, that are pilots. You know, Jimmy Johnson's pilot, he's a great guy. Kelly Hudson and some of the other pilots for Hendrix and so forth, and, you know, just a great group of guys. I said, we've got three major airports within an hour and a half of, of Greensboro, you know, in addition to the, the volume of Greensboro alone. And I said, so this would be a great place to start. So he's like, all right. So he came down here, started out on his own, and then uh, 
the demise of CV products started to happen. And so I had some free time on my hands. I said, hey, how'd you like some help? He's like, that'd be great. So I jumped in with him for about two and a half years and helped him get the company up and going. And we got a ton of clients and built a great little business. We acquired the Honda Jet account, a Swift Air, which has got a huge fleet, Old Dominion Trucking, which you see their trucks everywhere. They had three aircraft. We, that was all the gold we needed you know, for anyone in North Carolina. And then getting Hendricks on board and some of the other teams. It was a great business. My, my nephew actually sold it a couple of years ago and just did fantastic. He killed it. So that's kind of how I ended up in the aviation world. So for me, with everything Aero, so Perfect Aircraft is no longer, it got sold, it's got new names. Actually, the Carlisle Group, which you guys are probably familiar with, because they I think they own some power sports companies somewhere along the lines. Um, they, they're the ones that bought it and, and, and have changed the names and even merged even more detailing companies into that group. So everything Aero I've had since 2008, really, since I got down here. And when we got the lithium battery project with Chris Hackle and the guys at Millennium that started Ballistic, uh, we were on the backside of that. You know, they, they brought me this little battery at the at the dealer show. And I was like, oh, my God, what is that? And they're like, that's what we're running in the, the factory of Perlia bikes. I'm like, well, that is just too cool. I said, I want one for CV4 and I want one for my, whatever my, my own brand is going to be, which turned out to be Aerovolts. So I still have that going and, and it just chugs along and, you know, does, does a, a nice little business and it's a lot of fun and gets me into air shows, gets me an excuse to get out there and hang out with all the flying people. So what is the, what would you say the allure of aviation is for you? Because it seems like there's some kind of connection there. It must be, does it, is it similar to riding? Because there's, it seems like there's a lot of moto guys. Bob Hanna comes to mind, of course, you know, pilot. You know, what is it about aviation that really kind of pulled you in? Well, it, it's the adrenaline of it. You know, it, it's extremely tenacious and the, the rules and regulations are probably the biggest pain in the butt to learn all that. I mean, the book is like four inches thick that you got to memorize. Just the rules and regs. The flying part is, I would say, relatively easy from that aspect, you know, for a dirt biker, because we're so three-dimensional, because we have to fly a motorcycle and we understand how inertia works and all that. So most motocrossers are intuitively good pilots um, for the most part. You know, Kevin Windham, I mean, Heath Voss. I mean, there's so many, uh, there's 30 pilots, Brock Sellers, there's 30 pilots you could ride. I was going to say Brock's name. Yeah. You know, riders. <laughs> that, jump that, in there. They're all pilots and, 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 you know, they all soloed within 10 hours or eight hours, which is, you know, way below the norm. And flying is actually very uh, mellow. Our threshold for panic is very, very high as a racer. Um, and we, you know, you know that when you're riding in a car with your family, everybody else is screaming. You're like, what are you, what are you, what's going on? Why are you freaking out? Anyway, so I think it's the adrenaline of it, the freedom of it, the, the skill level. Um, and just everything that goes with it, just like racing, the preparation, your vehicle, the, you know, plane's got to be perfect. Your race bike's got to be perfect. So I think it's just, uh, I've wanted to fly since I was eight years old. I've just been in love with it. And it's got to be, you're the guy in control. So it's, I know that's for me and motorcycling is one of the reasons why it you know, has that allure because you're the person who decides what it's going to do. And I could see aviation kind of fit in that same, same envelope. You've got so much on your plate and so much going on, but in your spare time, you also are a promoter. You run two big events every year, one in the spring and one in the fall. And one of them, I think you just had a, a 21st anniversary with uh, the Crow Canyon event. And then you've also got the spring break ride. Talk about those and kind of how they got started and and, and where they're headed. Yeah. Um, with the, the turkey run was the first, you know, uh, my brother-in-law and I partnered up and you know, purchased some land up in Ohio there in the new Philadelphia area in a little town called Yorksville. It's about 400 acres. And my dream was to have an outdoor national there. And, you know, we, we had, I think, four or five GNCCs there um, that were televised and so forth. And then the GNCC group just outgrew the amount of parking we had. We've got a lot of terrain on the property called Crow Canyon there. And, and a lot of people hopefully have been there and rode and had a great time. 
Uh, I know Dave, Dave, you've been there and ridden. I don't know if Dale's been down there to ever get a chance to ride there or not, but uh, I know Dave's been there many times. Yep, I have. So we've had, you know, we had like nine or 10 Loretta qualifiers, you know, working with the Coombs family. The relationship there was still strong with Tim Cotter and everybody. And and it just, uh, you know, it was just a lot of fun. But then once I moved away, you know, promoting a, a Loretta Lens event or something like that was just too much work and too hard for me being down here. Um, and then we leased the land of the club down there and, and they do a great job of, uh, you know, putting on some events. They helped me with the turkey run, which... The group from the the the, uh, the club down there just I couldn't do without them for sure. They they make it all happen for us, which is awesome. So, you know, so big kudos to Jeff Ricker and, and Tom Coffee and Chuck and, and Jeff's son Chase. You know, the from the E Rock series, they you know they do all the sign up and registration for us, and and then we bring the KTM guys out, and we you know have Yamaha there, and Sherco's been there. We we're hoping to get Gas Gas this year, and so yeah, we we actually celebrated our 20th anniversary of that event, uh, the Turkey Run. So it all started with like eight of us. You know, Chris Bollinger who was at Wiseco at one point, uh, one of the engineers there. And John Eric Burleson, myself, Keith Engel, some local guys, it was like eight of us and, and some other friends. And we deep fried some turkeys. And, you know, so the next year we had like 25 and then it was 50 and then it was 100 and something. And then uh, I, I started talking to Mark. I'm like, Mark was working for KTM. I said, hey, Mark, why, why don't you bring some bikes out for these guys to ride from the dealer, you know, so people can get a chance to demo a KTM and just see how good they are. Because I love mine. You know, early 2000s, I had a 400 and made a 470 out of it with a Wiseco Big Board Kid. The thing was just a blast. And so Mark started bringing bikes out, and that's where the, the KTM demo program started. Now it's the largest off-road demo in the country. I can't imagine they draw, I don't know how many people every every year the, to the Crow Canyon event. It's it's huge. I mean, everybody talks about, are you going to the turkey ride? Going to the turkey ride. So it's it's definitely lived on, and we appreciate that. And I kind of want to get your, uh, as we wrap up here, Steve, I want to get your take I wouldn't say you're totally an outsider in the industry, but you're working outside of the industry. But uh, how do you see the power sports industry today as an, maybe that's somewhat of an outsider looking in? Yeah, I see, you know, I saw the growth of it in the expand, you know, just how, how wild it got with COVID because people couldn't do anything. So we had a lot, a lot of new entries coming in, which I thought was just fantastic. And I was hoping that we could, you know, maintain a lot of that activity. And I'm, I'm hoping that 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 has continued. And I, I think the turkey run this year, we had a thousand plus riders come through the gate by wristband to go ride in two days, which that's a that's a good testament that it's it's pretty healthy uh, for, for just a fun event. You know, that is not a race. So we got all sorts of people participating, ATV, side-by-sides, moto guys. There's guys that just come out strictly moto. And then we got woods guys, and it's a good mixture of everything. So I think that that side of it, on the recreational side, it's strong. I don't, I haven't been to a local race to see how many people are showing up there. But I know, you know, with the the demise of the two-stroke, which is totally just driven by the, the size of the, the four-strokes. If they made them a, a 400 and a 200 and kept it that size, we probably would still have a lot of two-strokes racing. But the, the torque was just you know, too much better on those bigger motors. So it just took took that 16-year-old kid in his pickup truck out of the equation. You know, I, I, I was looking at getting a new 300, $10,000 for a new 300. I about fell out of my chair. Yeah, they definitely have not gone down in price. I would agree, and uh, and and we don't know where it's headed. And I think your analogy is accurate that it's uh, it's healthy on the recreation side. Kind of have some concerns myself about the racing side where it's headed because you see participation is a little bit down on the local level. Do you follow any of the professional? You check in on any uh, racing throughout the year? Oh yeah, I watch every outdoor, every Supercross. You know, I'm I'm a Ken Roxon fan. You know, just mainly just from the heart of that guy and, and what he's overcome with his injuries. The fact that he, the fact that he wants to get out of bed and race just blows my mind. You following the Roxon drama that's been uh, that's been going? Oh, yeah, on? yeah. Oh, okay. So he's, you know, signed with Suzuki, and I'm I'm excited for him because you know he's 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 won his championships on Suzuki's. He came to the USA on a Suzuki. I think with you know Jeff Cernick brought him over. 
so yeah, so I, I watch all the local races or the, you know, pro supercross and, and outdoors. And, you know, so I, I won't miss any of those. And I try to show up at one when they had Muddy Creek, I'd, I'd go to that one every year. Cause it was, you know, that was the closest one for me. Yeah. And I don't know what the next closest one's going to be. Maybe Atlanta supercross might be not too far. Uh, Cause I don't think they do the Charlotte event anymore. We, we wanted to go to that Atlanta race and I might make it down for that. So um, that would, that would be a fun one. Cause it's Atlanta motor speedway, not the stadium. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, definitely. I hope you get out to one and stay in touch with the industry. And uh, as we wrap up today, is there anybody you want to give shout outs to? Yeah, thanks. Uh, You know, just all our sponsors, you know, Wiseco and Cometic. Cometic's been with us, you know, since day one at, you know, both of my events. The spring break ride will be May 6th and 7th up at Brushy Mountain uh, Motorsports Park. And I think you've been there before, Dave. It's a pretty, pretty epic place to ride. If you, you know, not, it's got a motocross track, but it's really not geared for moto. It's primarily an off-road park, but 2,000 acres roughly of single track and ATV and side-by-side trails. So whatever you're, whatever you bring there, you're good to go at all different levels. You know, you can scare the hell out of yourself or, or ride the bunny trails and just have a great time with your family either way you know, 60 helmets, it, it just, the list goes on and on of people that have supported us, Clots and Moose. Moose has been with us since day one. And gosh, it's just, uh, you know, just great, great companies that we've worked with. And um, they've, they've really taken good care of us. Also, uh, I just, you know, with the AirVolts batteries that I have for the airplanes, I'm, I'm launching, launching a sister company called Motovolts. You know, it's Motovolts with an S at the end instead of a Z. So keep an eye out for that new website coming out and a new product line that'll get me back into the power sports industry, maybe into, into some distribution at some point. Let's hope so. The industry misses you, Steve, and uh, they'd welcome you back with uh, with open arms, no doubt. And uh, man, we really appreciate you taking some time and uh, coming on today and telling your story. We're Steve Johnson fans, for sure. We should definitely do this again and tell some more stories. Maybe we'll keep them maybe PG. <laughs> <laughs> Even though we are a podcast, we could probably get away with it. Uh, we've got our reputations to protect. So Absolutely. We'll change the names to protect the innocent, for sure. Right, right. All right, man. Thanks for your time. And we really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And uh, you guys take care. And I really appreciate the time today. It was awesome. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow Pit Pass Moto on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you have a moment, please rate and review our show. We'd really appreciate it. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and visit pitpassmoto.com where you can check out our blog, listen to past episodes, and purchase your own Pit Pass Moto swag. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to Tommy Boy Halverson and the production team at Wessler Media. I'm Dale Spangler. And I'm Dave Sulecki. See you next week on Pit Pass Moto. should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. 
Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run, where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along The Planted Runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 